How are you doing? Hello, great. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Thank you for joining us. I was reading your report yesterday and well, over the weekend too. And all I had was deep despair. <laughs> so in the report, you start talking about this lady in, I believe, Mississippi. Is it Mississippi or Missouri? Um, is this the punishment bureaucracy you're talking about? Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Alabama. Alabama. And she is in jail for no other reason than she owed a lot of traffic tickets. So can you tell me a little bit about her and how you, as an academic, like came across, like, how did you guys cross paths and what happened? So I had recently quit my job as a public defender and I got a grant from Harvard Law School to go around the country and and try to start bringing civil rights cases to challenge basic systemic injustices in the criminal legal system. And I actually started my career as a public defender in Alabama. And so I went back to Alabama with this this first sort of little bit of money that I had. And I started driving around the state, going from courtroom to courtroom and jail to jail, and just watching, sitting in the back of courtrooms, interviewing people in the jail, interviewing people and their families after they got done with court. And the things I saw on that trip really shocked me, even me, who, who had seen a lot of really unfair, uh, grotesque things in the criminal punishment bureaucracy, um, and really set the, the course for the rest of my career. And so in, in it was January of 2014, I was in the Montgomery Municipal Court one morning in Alabama, and, and um, they brought in 67 people chained together in jail clothing and um, as I watched, um, a few things became really obvious. Number one, all 67 of them were black. Number two, not a single one of them was actually charged with a crime. All of them were there because they owed debts to the city from old tickets. And I watched one by one as they were begging to the judge, you know, saying, judge, I'm a homeless veteran. Please don't put me in jail. I, I just don't have the money. Or judge, I'm a mother of four young children who have disabilities um, please don't put me in jail. I don't know what's going to happen with my children. Um, Your Honor, I'm, I'm, I have nowhere to live. I'm homeless. I, I, I know I owe this money, but I can't pay it. And the judge would just scream at them and throw them in jail. And so um, I started you know, making various objections from the courtroom. And it turns out you're not really allowed to do that. And so they kicked me out of the courtroom. And so I, um, I went uh, up into the jail and I just started calling out the names of the people. And, and the first person I met with is the woman that you mentioned, Sharnel Mitchell. And Charnel showed me her court document and it said, pay us $2,807 or do 59 days in jail. And Charnel explained to me that in Montgomery, if you couldn't afford to pay what you owed them, they let you quote unquote, sit out your debt at $50 a day. But if you agreed to be a janitor for the city and you clean the feces and the blood and the mucus and the mold and the urine from the floors and the walls of the jail cell where you're sleeping on top of a bunch of other women next to toilets, 
Um, then you would get an extra $25 a day. So these women were competing every day to get the extra $25 toward their debt. And she showed me the back of her court document where she'd been writing desperately in handwritten pencil um, the $2,807 debt and then each day subtracting either $50 or $75 from it, desperately trying to figure out when she could get out because she had been sitting at home with her one-year-old on her lap and her four-year-old next to her when the police raided her home, separated her from her children and took her to jail for the debt. And, and so she didn't know where her babies were. And, and um, as she was telling me the story, you know, she started crying and all of the pencil markings on her paper were smudged. Um, and so I took a photograph of the document. I took down her story and she and the other people I met that morning became my first clients as a civil rights lawyer. About a year ago, we interviewed this man from Alabama who wrote a blog post against the governor's son. And he was sent to jail in like one of the most arbitrary systems. And he was a white man, but he was also stuck in jail and couldn't actually do the thing that would grant his release, which is delete the allegedly defamatory blog. And so it seems like there's so much arbitrariness, not not just Alabama, but everywhere. And for me, I mean, the only thing that's different from the 1800s Charles Dickens debtor's prison is that they're not being sent to Australia. And so how is this legal? And one more question. Do you remember what the original price like of the fine was for the women? And did they rack up interest, late fees, anything like that? Yeah, so um, that's a really great, both of those are really great questions. Um, I'll start with the second one first. Um, most of these debts started off as relatively small tickets. Um, police heavily target black communities for stopping them and giving them tickets. So they're disproportionately stopped, even though they're actually less likely to be committing a traffic violation or to have contraband. Black people are stopped more frequently and searched more frequently and ticketed more frequently than white people. Um, and these can start off as relatively small tickets, $100 here, $150 there. Um, but uh, it, a lot of places, like at the time, uh, Montgomery privatized the collection of this debt. And so if you can't afford to pay it off all at once, you're put on what they called probation, and you owe a monthly fee to the probation company on top of your other ticket. So let's say you have a $150 ticket, but you can only afford to make a $10 payment each month because you have a minimum wage job. Um, each month, you now owe a $35 or $40 payment to the company on top of your original ticket debt. And if you only make a $10 payment, um, each company, it, it, the company takes its money first. So each month, you're actually losing money toward your debt. So you could be on probation with this company on a $150 ticket, be on probation for five months, at the end of five months, owe $350 and have paid a couple hundred dollars. Um, and as, the, as this goes on for years and years, whenever you are late or you miss your payments, the company puts a warrant out for your arrest. So you could have been gone to jail several times, paid um, several hundred dollars on a $150 ticket and still owe $1,000 after a few years. Um, and this same thing is a system that we've seen all over the country. We, our office won a $14.3 million settlement on behalf of 25,000 people who this happened to in Tennessee. We've been litigating this issue and winning in Louisiana and Missouri and in Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi. All over the country, um, this stuff is happening. Um, may I ask you a quick question? Um, do you off the top of your head know, does Alabama have a statute about usury and what's the cap if there is one, if you know off the top of your head? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, the way they get around all this is they, they, they um, make debts to the court um, basically exempt from a lot of these protections. Ah, okay. Um, they also just ignore a lot of the protections. So um, Alabama, like many other states, has pretty good 
debtor protection laws saying you can't garnish a certain percentage of someone's wages, you can't take the last um, certain amount of their property or whatever. But instead of doing that, instead of actually garnishing them or taking them or seizing them, they just jail people and say, unless you pay us this money, you're going to stay in jail. So it coerces people into giving the, the local government and this private company money that the state law actually would not allow the, those entities to collect from them if they weren't threatening them with jail. Um, and then it's really important to point out that many of these states um, suspend your driver's license when you can't pay these court debts. So there are 11 million people around the country, as you and I are talking right now, who have suspended licenses because they can't pay court debt. Um, and those people, um, uh, they have a very desperate choice to make. Do they try to drive so they can get a get to a job to get money to pay back their debts, to get diapers and food and take their children to, to doctor's appointments or go to church? Um, even basic things that you and I take for granted, like taking our child to a park or, or something like that. Or um, They just can't do any of those things. They're trapped in their homes. And so inevitably, a lot of them... Um, uh, end up risking it and driving because they have to pay. They have to pay the bills, and these people end up getting arrested, and then they're jailed um, on a cash bail they can't afford. And this is one of the most common charges in police arrests in the country: driving on a suspended license. This is the the bulk of what police are doing is these low level crimes of poverty. It is completely illegal to jail someone just because they can't make a payment, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen all the time. Many things in our criminal legal system are illegal. Like it's illegal for police to search a young black man without probable cause. It's illegal for police to arrest someone without probable cause. And yet this kind of thing happens several million times every single year. So one of the, the basic truths about our legal system is that our, our fundamental constitutional rights are not self-executing. They don't just magically appear and help us. You need to be able to assert them. You need to have officials and judges and, 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 systems that actually honor those rights. And for, for poor people, disproportionately people of color who are trapped in our legal system, there, there is no one willing to enforce those basic rights for them. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's what really shocked me. Everyone knows we have a two-tier system, but the amount of mere debtor's prison, like back from Charles de Victorian England, is not what I imagined. And so in your paper, you come up with an excellent word for it. You call it the punishment bureaucracy. And so I think of it as like as a cycle of procedural issues that basically like can overwhelm a person and they'll get punished over and over for not following these procedural rules. And it hits the poor. Is that uh, the right way to think about it? Or do you have a different way to think about it? I am so glad you mentioned the punishment bureaucracy. It's it's the first essay in in my book, Usual Cruelty, which I really encourage people to read if they want to learn more about how this whole system works. And all of the royalties from the book are being donated to an amazing nonprofit called the SE Justice Group, which organizes women who have incarcerated loved ones. So none of the royalties go to me. Um, the book is called Usual Cruelty. Um, and if you're a teacher or a professor, we have a fund set up to get free copies for your students and free copies for people in prison. So I encourage you to check it out. And one of the things I try to talk about in the book is that there's really several levels at which this, this happens. Number one is the system decides what kinds of activity are going to be a crime and what kinds of activity are not going to be a crime. And those decisions are based on who has power and money and wealth. Um, throughout our country's history, we have criminalized certain conduct um, in an attempt to control certain populations. That's why 
this country made marijuana illegal, for example, was an attempt to give police more control over Mexican immigrants. It's why they made cocaine criminal to give police more control to 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 um, jail and 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 surveil and search and seize the property of black people in the South. It's why um, opium and its derivatives initially became illegal because it was a time when when police really wanted to be targeting Chinese American immigrants. Um, so you could go through the whole criminal law and, and many of, of, of the criminal laws we now take for granted were actually just decisions that were made for political reasons by powerful people. The second level at which this happens is, is the system has created a, a number of ways in which it only looks to enforce those criminal laws against some people in some places some of the time. So for example, if you have a fight in school, if you're in a wealthy private school and two students get into a fight, maybe they'll go to the principal's office, maybe their parents are called. But if you have a fight um, in a school with mostly poor children, disproportionately black children, um, the police are called and those children are arrested and they're given a criminal record and they're prosecuted. Um, the same is true throughout the whole criminal system. If you go to a fancy university like Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Michigan, um, there, there, there's rampant underage drug use, um, there's rampant underage drinking, rampant sexual assault on campus. Uh, these, these crimes are, are not, there's, they're not prosecuted. They're not, police aren't raiding people's dorm rooms and seizing things. They're not um, having undercover informants go to frat parties. At the same time, right down the street in those same cities, in poor neighborhoods, police are raiding people's homes. They're rounding people up. They're arresting people. Um, we, we don't enforce um, drug laws against rich white, white people in the same way that we enforce them against black communities and poor communities. The same is true across the criminal law, whether it's completely ignoring tax evasion and white collar crime or environmental pollution uh, crimes, um, but dram dramatically enforcing things like um, public intoxication and trespassing in poor neighborhoods with, with people who are homeless. Um, I could go on and on. I give hundreds of examples in the book to really make this come to life. But the system then creates a whole system of procedures to, to process this many people. Like one of the problems with the system is that it's an assembly line. Mm -hmm. um, we are taking 11 million people from their schools and jobs and families and homes and churches and communities and processing them through this criminal punishment bureaucracy. And as you mentioned, we had to create all these procedures and rules and positions and, and, and jobs in this bureaucracy to process that many people. And, and I think that is very hard to dismantle once you create it. I guess what really hit me is that earlier this year, I did an article about corporate death penalty. And I looked at conduct that corporations can get away with, like they can commit the Holocaust and still be around. And humans don't have even a little bit of leeway. So yeah, it, it seems like we have a completely two-tiered system. But I have a philosophical question. Do you remember a few years ago when the former president said, I can shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and I will lose no followers? Is there a corollary to, let's say, like a government official or a CEO on what conduct does he need to do in order to be held responsible here? Because we've seen so much, uh, so many crimes, it just, even Eric Holder says, too big to fail, we can't prosecute. And so do you have an answer to this philosophical question, I guess? <laughs> I try to, to really get at that in the book, Usual Cruelty. I mean, I think this is a very important question to understand. Um, the, the basic organizing principle, um, and, it, and it's not new. It goes back to something that Voltaire wrote about. You know, um, and there's, there's, a, there's a great sort of old Voltaire saying about how, you know, if, if you, um, 
you know, invade and raid one ship at sea, you're called a pirate. But if you, you know, uh, take over an entire country and its entire navy and you rule the whole seas, you're called an emperor, you know, and, and um, the same is true now. If you invade a 7-Eleven, you'll be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and, and sent to a cage for many, many decades. But if you invade a foreign country illegally, um, you're celebrated. You're given a presidential library. Um, the same type of principle governs the entire criminal law. The more power people have, the less what they do is even considered a crime. And if it's considered a crime, the less um, likely that the authorities are to prosecute them for it. Um, the too big to fail thing from Eric Holder is a really good example. I mean, they had rampant criminal, I write about this in the, in the book, they had extremely strong cases that these corporate banks had engaged in rampant criminality that killed hundreds of thousands of people. When you look at the actual data for um, how home foreclosure and poverty contribute to people dying um, and they chose not to prosecute anyone. It was a deliberate decision. Um, the same is true with the people who committed torture uh, in the wake of the, the, what they called the war on terror. We had um, irrefutable evidence. The DOJ actually had overwhelming evidence against many, many employees of the U S government who actually killed people um, in these grotesque um, uh, torture sessions, you know, chaining people in freezing rooms until they died, um, locking people in boxes until they died, um, all kinds of, of really grotesque stuff. They chose to look forward and not backward. That was their sort of their mantra. Now, that every single day with ordinary people, disproportionately poor people and black people who drive on a suspended license or possess cocaine or, or, or any number of other actions that are a crime, we don't choose to look forward and not backward. We prosecute them for their crimes. It's, it's, it's elite people and, and, and wealthy people who, who get this sort of different level of treatment in the system. And I'm not saying I advocate um, using what we now have as this horrible criminal prosecution system against those people. I'm just pointing out in, in this first part of the book that um, the system has different goals and different interests than the ones it tells us because we can see that the fact that it's choosing to ignore many of the crimes that, it, that are being committed. Absolutely. Um, one thing that you mentioned in the section called the punishment bureaucracy, you mentioned a lot of these people who are in, in, for lack of a better word, like debtors crimes, a lot of them don't have representation. And I thought that there was a case called Gideon v. Van Wright or something that says you have to have an attorney. So what happens here? So there's a lot of very basic constitutional principles in our legal system that are just never followed. Um, I write about a number of them in the book. The right to counsel is another one where all over the country, people are jailed without having a lawyer. And there's actually some legal gray area about whether you're even entitled to a lawyer when you're being just imprisoned for owing debt. Um, because Gideon technically only applies um, felony offenses, and then it's been extended to misdemeanor offenses where you could be sentenced to jail later. Um, but some uh, of these government officials are arguing that you're not entitled to a lawyer when you've already been convicted, and they're just trying to jail you for not paying. Now, I think that's wrong. And I think if the courts were to actually um, fully consider that question, they would provide people lawyers. Um, but even if the courts were to provide, were to say that a lawyer is required, all over the country, lawyers are just not provided. I mean, it, it's it's something that um, is a little bit of a catch-22 because you, you, you can only complain about not having a lawyer and, and overturn the bad thing that happened to you, usually if you get another, a different lawyer to, to help navigate that process. And so 
most of the time this happens to people, they never are given a lawyer or any help. And so there's no one to fight for them. And so they don't even, may not even know they had a right to a lawyer. And this is what I've seen in, in dozens of, of cities and dozens of counties and hundreds and thousands of cases all over the country over the years. Need the perfect follow-up to Catterday? Learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Yulinov, a.k.a. Lenin, with our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically. Also, please go to historically.substack.com and support us with your subscription. There you can check out other episodes of the podcast, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out how to catch our live streams on Twitch and on YouTube. That's historically.substack.com. So a lot of people have fines or debts that they did not pay. How much of bringing them back into court is up to the prosecutor and how much discretion do they have just to say, okay, we're just going to drop this? That depends on, on the jurisdiction. It's, it's pretty different in different states, but typically the prosecutor has a lot of discretion. Nobody is forcing the prosecutor. There's no law that forces the prosecutor to go after these debts. Um, there's no law that, that forces the local probation department or the local court system to go after these debts. These are choices that they're making. Um, very, very clear, um, simple choices. Um, and because of who they're doing it to, a lot of people with political power haven't bothered to care. And, it's, and to the contrary, there's a lot of money to be made off of it. When I got to Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed in 2014, um, and I started investigating our debtor's prison case against the city of Ferguson, which we filed in the beginning of 2015, which is still going on, um, Ferguson averaged 3.6 arrest warrants per household. Almost all of those arrest warrants were for Black people. Almost all of them were for unpaid debts to the police department. Per household. Wow. Yes, um, about 2.2 arrest warrants for every adult in the city. And imagine what this means. I mean, people are afraid to even leave their homes because the police are going to arrest them. And these were very deliberate decisions at every stage. There were deliberate decisions by the police to just keep stopping people and giving them tickets, particularly Black people. And then, and then decisions by the prosecutors to ruthlessly collect this debt. And then decisions by the local city judge and the city jail to jail people when they couldn't pay the debt. Yeah, that part is like um, completely, unbelievably shocking. Um, and uh, I, I, I just really don't have words for it. But so you also mentioned that no politician, even the most allegedly progressive ones, are addressing it because they're looking at it through the wrong framework of criminal justice reform. So what is the framework that they should be looking at? And where do we begin? <laughs> I try to set forth at the end of the first essay, you know, some rules of thumb for how to think about this stuff a little bit differently. And I would say that most politicians are offering you um, quote unquote reforms that do very little to actually change the architecture of the system. And in fact, they preserve almost all of that architecture. And they're designed to sort of curb off maybe some of the most grotesque flourishes of the system to 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 give in to a little bit of the, the, the fire and passion for, for changing the system that so many people like you and me and others who hear about it, you know, we want change. And so a lot of the changes are the very people who designed these systems are thinking, oh boy, we have to do something to preserve the legitimacy of it. Let's do this little thing right here and hopefully trick people into, into thinking that the whole thing is better. I'll give you a couple of examples. So 
in the wake of a lot of police violence over the last few years, um, uh, one of the big quote unquote reforms folks are pushing is the body camera for police officers. A little bit of the untold story of this history is that police unions and police officers actually have been wanting body cameras for ages because they're very, very helpful surveillance tool for the police. They couldn't get local governments to spend the billions of dollars it would take to outfit every cop in America with body cameras. So what do they do? They started pushing it as a quote-unquote liberal reform for police violence. So the more violence they commit, the more reforms uh, liberals and, and moderates are pushing, and, and the more money they're saying we need to give police for this very technology that they couldn't have afforded before. Um, now police are realizing this is a, such a boon because they control the cameras. They decide where to go, who to use the camera on, right? When to turn them on, when to turn them off. And they now get to link those cameras to these vast facial recognition databases they're creating, giving more and more and more and more data into these devices. So it's, it's a dream world for police. The body camera question is all wrong if you actually care about the violence of police against black communities. The questions we should be asking is, why are police in these communities in the first place? What are they doing there? Why, why are there so many cops arresting so many people for so many things in these communities? Why are they searching and frisking and stopping and arresting and caging all these black families? Um, instead of asking, like, um, how can we videotape them brutalizing the same people in the same places uh, uh, in the same uh, um, manner, we should be asking, why are they, in, why are they there in the first place? Um, and so the kinds of reforms that, that I think are actually designed to fix these problems are the kinds of reforms that would dramatically shrink the size of this police bureaucracy. And it truly is a bureaucracy. It, it, there's no evidence that it's making anyone any safer at all. And it's taking away a lot of investment from local communities. You, you saw this after the police murdered Breonna Taylor in Louisville recently. The police got a $750,000 budget increase, and the local library got cut by $775,000. The police have become such a powerful local lobby that they convert even their own misconduct into larger and larger budgets. And so we need to be thinking much more um, systemically about reducing the size and power of police departments and prosecutors' offices in general. Yeah, I mean, that's like one of the many non-reforms <laughs> with the police that have been going on. We also had Stuart Trader on who talks about how like it's connected to the U.S. police or have also been like training all these other horrific things. Uh, it, it, a lot of it is connected. Um, and one of the things that really shocked me from your essay is the fact that California has so many suspended life. It, we think uh, many people have the idea that California is a I guess, a bastion of progressivism or whatever. And the sheer number of people, like it's in the millions, no, four point, according to your essay, it's 4.2 million people don't have their driver's license in California alone for debt. And so that part shocked me because it seems like it's a bipartisan consensus almost. So California actually, because of some amazing advocacy by really inspiring people, California actually recently reformed that issue. Um, and so did New York. Um, that's a really, really huge win for poor people. Um, but California is still the nationwide leader in many of the bad things about this criminal punishment bureaucracy. For example, it has the worst bail system in the country. So California has the most people in jail prior to their trial, presumed innocent, just because they can't pay cash bail. California's cash bail amounts are about five times the national average. And in California, um, even for people that are able to pay the exorbitantly high money bail amounts, people that aren't 
um, stuck in jail, their families are paying several um, hundred million dollars a year to the for-profit bail industry in California, which are companies that are that come in when when you when you and your loved one can't afford to pay the money bail, and they charge you a fee in order to post the bail for you. And um, California has the highest rates of pretrial detention of any place that I've seen. And I just argued a case in the California Supreme Court a few weeks ago that I hope will will go a long way toward reforming this. And there's some really great activism and organizing in California on the ground, led in particular by the Justice LA Coalition um, that is trying to dramatically change these laws. But it's really important to understand that um, the mass incarceration bureaucracy that's been created is a fully bipartisan effort. Um, in fact, the Democrats have, have in, in many respects, been the primary instigator of this. Um, the 1994 crime bill and, and, and 1996 Anti-Terrorism um, and Effective Death Penalty Act, probably the two most significant pieces of federal legislation in this area were, were creatures of Bill Clinton and Joe Biden. Um, and they put 100,000 new cops on the street in just a few years. They dramatically curtailed the ability of criminal defendants to fight for their freedom and to to allege that their incarceration was unconstitutional. Um, these are really horrific, horrific laws that contributed to the largest expansion of race-based human caging in the modern world history. We now cage Black people at six times the rate of South Africa at the height of apartheid. That part, it, yeah, um, it's kind of funny because I've actually had South African friends in New York say that they're literally more afraid of cops here than they ever were back home. And so, yeah, that is very shocking. And you also mentioned another statistic that what we call the land of the free has more prisoners in absolute numbers than countries like India and China that have a population of a billion. How's that possible? I mean, we have, we have it's really quite an achievement when you think about it. Um, not only do we only have about 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. And we have more. So one in four. Okay. So out of every four people in jail, one person is an American. Is that yep. the right way to think about it? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And, and uh, we have created an incredible bureaucracy that processes I mean, to make this happen. You have to have all of the people making the handcuffs and the sirens and the tasers and the bulletproof vests. You have to have all of the police officers and probation officers and prosecutors and judges and public defenders and clerks, prison guards. You, it's, a, it's a gigantic system. As a result of that, once you've created all of those jobs, there's a lot of people who depend on this system for their livelihood. And then you get into all the private companies that are profiting off of every single stage. We now have, in most jails around the country, we've gotten rid of the ability of people to visit um, their loved ones. So you can't even hug your child if your child's in jail. You can't even hug your parent if you're, if you're a child who's incarcerated. Um, you can't hug your wife or your husband. Um, can't see your kids. Um, right. And, and the reason for that is um, these for profit telecom companies um, are paying kickbacks to the jails. And they said, look, if you eliminate um, in person family visits, people are going to spend more money on phone calls. We'll jack up those rates and then we'll give you a cut of it. This is the main business model of the large telecom companies that do business in jails and prisons. The largest one, Securus, is owned by Tom Gores, the, the owner of the Detroit Pistons. Oh my. And so this is a person who's one of the most prominent people in, in, in Michigan and uh, Detroit life. He owns the NBA team, which is talking about racial justice. And yet his business model is taking money from poor black and brown families 
who are locked in jail because they can't pay cash bail and then charging them exorbitant rates after having gotten rid of their ability to actually see their family. It's, it's really disgusting. And on top of it, many families are where two parents need to work. So now they don't have that one parent who's even working a job. So losing more money. It seems like we hear about a lot of cases that horrify us in, on day one. And then it's like day one, two. There's another, it's an overwhelming number of cases to like have a sustained media attention or anything like what can we do in the progressive media like maybe me and all the other progressive media folks that could have like more of a sustained create instead of like being so dependent on these like horrific little details to like have a more how how do we pay more attention to this (laughs) um i think it's really important to to have progressive media like this that is telling people these stories, that is getting bigger and bigger audiences for people like you that are willing to talk about these issues, which which aren't really covered in a sustainable way in, 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 in the, the sort of more mainstream corporate media. Um, but it's also important to link that work to, to particular campaigns. Because for example, there is a campaign now in Los Angeles to reinvest money from the policing bureaucracy to um, things like um, safe, affordable housing, mental health treatment, and drug abuse tr- abuse treatment, and and um, things that that people need, like like programs for ki- children, etc. Things that actually are proven to help make communities safer and healthier. There's a campaign um, against the owner of the Detroit Pistons for his predatory um, telecom uh, uh, work. It's, it's led by an organization called Worth Rises, and so I think one thing that you can do is not only educate your listeners and, and encourage other progressive media to to talk about these issues, but you can also um, show them where they can get involved in some of these issues, like show them the Worth Rises campaign against the owner of the Detroit Pistons and and get more and more people demanding that the NBA and the Detroit Pistons do something about this horrible injustice. And so um, it, I think it's you should be thinking about how can I educate people and, and, and expose them to something they may not have heard of, but also how can I give them something to get involved with? So they're not just... Um, thinking um, the world is such a horrible place and I can't do anything about it, but actually they feel empowered to get together with other people um, and, and have an impact on some of this stuff. Of course, that is also a good idea. Um, one thing that really shocked me in just the first parts of the essay was the idea of dice wagering being illegal and jailable. And I think it's a good example of a uh, non-crime that still affects so many people's lives. Can you explain what dice wagering is and what happened to some of the people you've encountered? Yeah, so I mean, um, it's technically illegal still to to wager over dice in the streets, you know, the sort of like gambling, illegal gambling that, that many people in poor communities do in, in common spaces. And but many other forms of gambling, like I talk about in the piece, um, many forms of what are now called derivatives trading on Wall Street used to be illegal gambling. Like yesterday, and a, bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of rich bankers paid the federal government a bunch of money through lobbying, and they got those laws changed, and they were able to trade these derivatives in these ever more increasingly risky ways. It actually led to the worldwide financial crisis. And the same is true with commodities. Like a lot of people are just wagering over wheat prices and grain prices, right, of, of all sorts. And when you wager over those prices, you can actually lead to huge shortages and 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 mass starvation. And, and yet that kind of wagering engaged in by rich people and banks is totally, quote unquote, legal. Um, but the wagering of, of, of dice in, in, in the street by poor people is illegal. You can be arrested and have your cash seized and forfeited to the police. So 
it's just one small example of how the laws that we have in this society are shaped by people who have power. It is. And I just had another thought that just came into my mind. And even yesterday, we had the uh, uh, little uh, pump and dump, whatever scandal, and that's completely legal. But the same conduct amongst poor people is not cognizable. But then there's also a second aspect of it. Yes, the law offers remedies, like if you're abused in prison, etc. But I have heard of many cases where people who uh, file some sort of case about their treatment ends up getting retaliated against. And so, like, how big of a barrier is that fear of retaliation that stops people from even coming forward to talk about what happened to them? It's a huge barrier. Um, Not only have we our, our civil court system has created so many barriers that make it so hard to win those cases. So when anyone comes to a lawyer, the lawyer has to advise them and say, look, it's going to be really hard to win this case. It's very hard to get a positive lawsuit against the police. It's just really hard if you're a prisoner to win a prisoner rights case. Almost impossible at this point. Um, the courts are basically completely opposed to, to and so you have to say to the person, But what's not um, unlikely is that you're going to get uh, retaliated against. Um, The system is one of widespread, rampant retaliation, particularly by prison guards, um, but also by prosecutors and police officers. So I've had many, many clients who who the cops have have retaliated against in in some of the most unspeakable and brutal ways um, uh, for, for asserting their basic basic constitutional human rights. It's it's a rampant problem and, and. um, of course, that retaliation is also criminal um, in many cases um, when the police engage in it, but um, prosecutors decide which crimes to look at and which crimes not to, and they never prosecute police for that kind of thing, right? It's very, very rare um, for a prosecutor to prosecute a cop for um, anything, let alone the sort of ordinary, everyday injustices that, that we see, like illegally stopping someone, roughing them up a little bit, searching them, even though all of those things are federal felonies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, it's unfortunately a, a, a daily feature of our work that we have to think about how our clients might be retaliated against. The current vice president, um, and this is also a more common issue, had a program where even though they were not educated as guilty, they could go through these like, uh, I don't know, alternative programs where it was almost like they were being guilty. And what they held against them was that, okay, we're going to drop the charges at the end versus we're just going to super pile on lots of extra charges if you don't, if you actually use your right to trial. Like, can you talk a little bit about this and why is this a phenomenon? Yes, this is actually one of the, another example of the, of the sort of fake reforms I was talking about earlier. Um, around the country, one of the quote unquote reforms to mass incarceration has been uh, something called diversion programs. So. You know, they'll say, we won't prosecute you if you don't do anything wrong for six months, and, and then you won't get anything on your record, but if you mess up, then we're going to prosecute you for it. And so these are seen as, like, really good things. But in fact, um, if you look at it, they're actually net widening. What I mean by net widening is they expand the scope of the punishment bureaucracy and bring more and more people into it. Now, why? Well, one of the main features of these programs is that they're done for profit, fees. So these DA's offices often charge a fee for entering into the program. So if you're too poor to pay the fee, you just get prosecuted. If you're wealthy enough to do it, then you can pay, fine. But because now they're, they're doing this for money, 
it encourages the prosecutors and the police with whom they sometimes split this money to arrest even more people because they know they can't prosecute all the people. They couldn't even begin to um, have a, a defense lawyer and a jury trial. Of all these people. They know that, that, that ordinarily they'd have to dismiss those cases, but now they can put them in a diversion program within the private company supervising them and drug testing that they have to pay for and a fee. And so that actually enables them to take on more and more cases, making more and more money um, than they would have without those programs. And so it, it's actually a, a way of making the system bigger uh, in, in many, many places. Now, I'm all in favor of prosecuting people uh, less and, and of shrinking the size of the system. But most of these programs, like these diversion programs that people are, are, are touting around the country, actually aren't doing that at all. They're still sending the same number of people to jail, um, but they're actually encouraging more, more and more people to be arrested. And they're encouraging fewer cases to just be dismissed outright and more cases to be dismissed only after like six months of for-profit supervision. How much money do these for-profit supervision companies end up making just a ballpark? No one knows. No one's really studied it. They're very local. Oh. Um, they're, they're, they're very, very spread out around the country. We, we've sued um, a company that in, in Arizona that, it, that appears to be making um, in the millions o- over the, the last several years. Um, but it's very, very difficult to figure out um, how much these companies are making and, and how much of a cut the prosecutors and the police are getting. These, there's not enough investigative journalism into it. There's, there's not good record keeping. There's, there, many of them aren't, aren't around the country, aren't complying with, with various freedom of information and disclosure laws. So it's a big problem, but we don't actually know the full scope of it. That's even more disturbing. Is there like anything that we haven't covered that you want to talk about that's shocking or you think it's necessary pe- for people to understand because th- there is a lot. So um, I just want to give you an opportunity to like talk about anything that's important that didn't catch my net. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think you, you did a great job. I think that's, um, we covered so much and, and there's a lot more in the book. I encourage people to take a look at usual cruelty. And um, how do people, uh, I, I know you have a personal Twitter, but does your organization also have social media that they can follow up on? Yes. Um, so I'm at Equality Alec on Twitter and, and the organization is at Civ Rights Corps, um, C-O-R-P-S. Um, and you can get the book anywhere books are sold. And yeah, I think that that um, there's just, we've only just scratched the surface. I mean, this system is so monstrous and so big and so unjust in so many ways that it's really important for people to, to, to learn a little bit about how it's operating and then to figure out small ways they can get involved in their own community. Like, is it so two-tiered that somebody who lives in, say, okay, Darien, Connecticut is one of the ritzier areas a little up north of New York. Like, would they not understand what's going on right here in the city? Is it that two-tiered or is it possible, like, for them to kind of understand? I guess I'm just wondering. I think everybody can understand if they if they hear some of the stories. And, and in every community in the country, the local court system is a place where poor people get processed. It doesn't matter if you're in, in Connecticut or New York or California or Alabama or Louisiana. Or here, absolutely. I mean, we've seen on a daily basis, in uh, even in Manhattan, I see police officers hanging out in front of subways to get fare jumpers. And it's like, don't you guys have better things to do? Yeah, I mean, what people don't understand is that the, the main, and I write about this in another piece I wrote for Current Affairs called Why Crime Isn't the Question and Police Aren't the Answer. Um, but the, if you look at the history of this, the main function of 
American policing has been to control and, and surveil um, poor people and to prevent uh, labor uprisings, um, to capture people who were enslaved, who ran away. I mean, those are, those are how modern American police forces developed. And that's the governing principle of them throughout the 20th century. And um, only very recently have they concocted this narrative that their purpose is public safety. I mean, gosh, I mean, who knows what that even means? I mean, yeah. it's certainly not safety for poor communities. And there's also, apparently, they don't have a constitutional, uh, I asked another attorney for another piece, but they don't even have a constitutional ob- obligation to serve and protect. No, I mean, all of that is just propaganda, right? Yeah. Um, and what I try to lay out very clearly in the book is if you actually look at what police have done throughout their whole history, you can't say in any reasonable way that their their purpose is public safety. Their purpose has been to to control and surveil Black people and poor people on behalf of wealthy interests. Yep, I guess the Madisonian purpose to protect those with property from those who are considered property. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and thank you so much. Um, what is next for you after this book? Do you have more in the works, or do you are you continuing with this research? Like, what what are you planning on doing next? Uh, I still have my full-time job as a civil rights lawyer and, and we have, we're up to 30 people at our organization and we're trying to do as much of this urgent work as we can around the country. So I don't get as much time to, to write, um, but I'm, I'm trying to be more active on, on Twitter and, and pointing out a lot of these issues as they come up in the daily news. Um, so I've been trying to do a little bit more tweeting and, and showing people and telling people these stories and lifting up some of the campaigns people can get involved with to help. Um, so there's a lot of that. And I think We'll keep litigating on the bail issue until we can get all the 400,000 people who are in jail cells right now because they can't pay until we can get them out of jail. We're going to keep fighting really, really hard on that issue. We're going to be fighting against police misconduct and prosecutorial abuse and and really many of the things we've talked about today. We've got a lot of work to do. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, we'll try to get this um, episode out uh, maybe, I don't know, next week or the week after that. We'll see. Okay. Um, because uh, recently we just had um, Christian Contreras who talked about the LA deputy gangs and that one was just oh yeah that just I'm overwhelmed with that and then this one it's like wow we have a, a huge 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 problem um, yes <laughs> and anyways and thank you again and have a wonderful rest of the afternoon you too thank you both so much have a great day bye 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 Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.